Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello. Uh, welcome to another show. This one is produced by celebrity producer Lily Tyson. Um, this is a show that I wouldn't have thought of doing, but I'm so glad that we're doing it. It's about treasure hunting. And I think it's about treasure hunting on two or three different levels. Just sort of the practical fact that there are treasures and people hunt for them. There's also the sense of the quest. You know, in some ways, as we will talk about in the third segment, when we discuss geocaching, it doesn't have to be much of a treasure. People like just getting out there and looking for stuff. Um, and, and I think also there is that notion that you could, and I think this has inflamed and informed the act of treasure hunting for most of human history. It's one of your opportunities to change your station in life, right? Uh, I mean, if you, in fact, are you know of humble origins, if you could find that treasure, uh, you could change things pretty drastically. I mean, you would probably be better off putting like $20 into a, you know, index stock fund from the time you're 25 or something. <laughs> You'd probably be much better off at the end than you will be looking looking for treasure. But, you know, it's like the lottery. Somebody's going to hit it. Somebody's going to find that treasure. Um, as we go along today, we will talk a little bit later about sort of the 21st century's so far, by far, greatest and most mass market, mass media viral treasure hunt. And that would be the Forest Fen treasure. Uh, but we want to talk about the act of treasure hunting, too, and sort of all the mythology that goes behind it and all the impulses that inform it. And as I say, it'll be uh, geocaching at the end. Uh, and in fact, the creator of the blog, Geocaching While Black, because as we now have been reminded rather painfully in this country over the last two or three years, it's one thing to be white and wandering around looking for something that nobody else can see in God knows what part of what town in the middle of nowhere it's another thing, quite another thing to try to do that when one is a person of color. So anyway, we'll talk about all that stuff. But uh, our guide here in the first two segments will be Dan Barbarisi, author of Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. That extraordinary treasure hunt will be the Forest Fen one. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit in the uh, second segment. But first of all, uh, Dan Barbarisi, let's just sort of talk about treasure hunting in general. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Um, can you actually, I actually know from reading your book, one of the things that might have informed and inflamed your own mind and heart uh, uh, about treasure hunting. It was a movie that you saw when you were young. <laughs> Cat, uh, let's hear a little of that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. it was. Uh, the you guys, this map is old news. Everybody and their grandfather went looking for that when our parents were our age. I mean, I mean. Haven't you ever heard of that guy? What's his name? The pirate guy. One-Eyed Willie. One-Eyed Willie. Yeah, he was the most famous pirate in his time. My dad told me all about him once. Dad'll do anything to get you to go to sleep. <laughs> no. See, One-Eyed Willie stole treasure once. It was full of rubies and, and emeralds and diamonds. Diamonds. 
and he loaded it all up onto his ship, and they sailed away into the sunset until the British king, so he found out about it, and then he set up this whole armada to go out after him, and then the armada, it took him a couple weeks, but then they caught up with Willie, and, and then there was a whole big war between the armada and Willie's ship, the Inferno, and th during the firefight, there was just guns bursting here and cannons bursting there, and then Willie fled, because he didn't want to stay around, because he knew he'd get killed if he stayed around. And then he got into this cave, and, the, and then the British, they, they blew up the walls all around him. And, and he got caved in, and he's been there ever since. Forever? Forever. And ever? Trapped. Wow. So, for people who don't recognize that, that's, of course, from Citizen Kane. No, it's not. Uh, Dan, maybe you better tell them. Yeah, that is uh, certainly too familiar to people of a certain age. That's the Goonies. Um, you, uh, Richard Donner just passed away. His, uh, his very fun treasure hunting film um, from, I think it was 1986. And that's, uh, that's Sean Astin, later more famous as Samwise Gamgee in uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, doing most of the talking there. And for me, being, you know, six, seven years old at the time, that was totally intoxicating. That was the idea, you know, you little kid can go in with your buddies and actually go find a, a buried treasure, a hidden treasure, and, you know, be part of a, of a big adventure. And, you know, obviously, then reality intervenes, and you don't get to do that, um, because life doesn't, generally speaking, go that way, um, until every once in a while you find out it actually does. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where I picked up the Forest Fen Hunt in 2017, when, when a friend of mine told me about it, and that there was this real-life treasure hunt, and it actually existed, and you know, you too could go and search for the treasure. And, you know, that brought me back to being that little kid who, you know, wanted to go and, and bring his goony buddies around and go find One-Eyed Willie's loot. So uh, as soon as I found out that was a real thing, I, I decided to kind of dive into that whole hog and try to be a part of that treasure hunt. And also because I was, you know, a journalist and author uh, as well, um, chronicle that treasure hunt and try to tell the story of it uh, in, in grand form. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of how I got into the Forest Fen story. It's all the Goonies' fault. So, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, we'll talk a lot about that in our second segment. But this being a public radio show, we have to talk about the histories of things and stuff like that. So, and it is true that there's this kind of repeat of that cycle. There aren't always movies uh, because it's too early in history. But, for example, one of the people that you write about, and this guy, what an amazing story. I kind of went down a rabbit hole with him. Uh, Captain William Phipps, uh, who uh, in the 17th century, late 17th century, inflames the mind of the British public. Although I would point out he's actually from Maine. He's actually a very early Mainer who makes his way back to England and becomes uh, uh, part of a huge story about a treasure. I'll let you pick up the tale. Yeah, one of the things that I was able to do in Chasing the Thrill was kind of look at where it stood in the, you know, the continuum of treasure hunting for all time and, and you know, look at past treasure hunts and how these things evolved. And as you mentioned, the story of, of Captain Phipps is a really interesting one, a guy who would go on actually to become a governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony um, and then actually preside over the Salem Witch Trials. Really interesting dude. But he also was a very early treasure hunter. So, you know, there's been treasure hunting forever. You know, there were Egyptians were, were, you know, seeking treasure back from older tombs back then. And then, you know, the Romans would go seek stuff from treasure civilizations before them. And, you know, there's myth, there's legend, there's the idea that there actually is stuff in the ground from civilizations before ours, all that kind of works together. But, you know, in so many ways, treasure hunting really kicked off, uh, you know, with, with the galleons and the Spanish main and the idea that, you know, there was all this, quote unquote, new world treasure being brought back. 
um, from the new world to the old world in the uh, 1500s, 1600s. And a lot of those ships were not going to make it across, whether it was because of battle or much more often storms. A lot of these Spanish galleons, you know, replete with silver and gold and many other uh, valuables were sunk uh, in the Atlantic. And so, you know, within about 100 to 200 years, technology started to advance to the point where hunters could actually go and seek some of these treasures. And they mentioned the diving bell was very important, some other things. And um, Captain Phipps was one of the early ones to kind of figure that out and, and, and really act on that. And, you know, his story is one of of real treasure seeking and real treasure hunting and has, you know, so many of the tropes that we almost associate with treasure hunting today, you know, and uh, a secret map to the treasure and competition and pirates and all this kind of stuff is part of his, his journey. And then eventually, you know, he actually does come up with serious Spanish treasure, brings it back to England, is a completely rich man from that point on, and really kicks off a, a treasure hunting craze, which uh, in the, you know, late, late 1600s. And that, you know, becomes something where all of a sudden that becomes part of the modern uh, you know, it, it really inflames, as you said, modern excitement at that time. And everyone wants to go become a treasure hunter and go find their own, you know, galleon to bring up. And obviously it doesn't go like that for most people, but it really started to, I think, kick off the modern era of treasure hunting at that time. And people saw it was possible and technology had advanced and the finds were really out there to go and make themselves rich. Right. And, you know, I mean, in a way, well, we should talk a little bit about it, though. And, and another thing that comes along with that eventually is literature that accompanies this idea or that further inflames this idea. The the classic, obviously, is Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, we have with Treasure Island. I, I happen to feel that the definitive movie version of uh, Treasure Island is the Muppet one. So you're about to hear. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, yes. Uh, you'll hear uh, Jim Hawkins and Billy Bones. You'll also uh, hear the great Gonzo uh, and Rizzo the Rat, who do not appear in the original Robert uh, Louis Stevenson uh, novel, but I, I think are intrinsic to this particular scene. It's mine! I've gone for that treasure myself! And no one-legged son of a bilge rat will... Captain Bones! He died? And this is supposed to be a kid's movie. Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. Me always been a decent sort to old Billy Bones. I'm not Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. He's Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. Jim? Yes, Captain. Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jim, 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 Jim. Yes, Captain, what is it? Take the map. What map? The map to old Flint's treasure. Don't you understand what I've been telling you? I was Flinty's first mate. We all were blind, oh. you and me. Oh, my old shipmates. They'll gully me for sure, and anybody else to get their mitts on that map. And gullying hurts, right? Oh, aye. A lot. Oh. So quick, go to my sea chest. Get the map. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh. oh, there. I'd like to point out that one of the things they find in the sea chest is a copy of Diplomacy by Henry Kissinger, uh, as they're just <laughs> tossing things over their shoulders, uh, looking for it. But you know, I mean, in all, in some seriousness, anyway, that becomes another part of it, right? Then there becomes a, a kind of adventure, a, a, a narrative pattern that people become familiar with. Dan, the, that idea. Yeah, very much. I mean, you know, Stevenson is really the guy who I think um, he collated a lot of those tropes and really just centralized them in one place. You know, the idea of X on the map, the the, the peg leg pirate with the parrot, you know, the, the skeleton points away to the treasure. Um, all that stuff is in Treasure Island. And, you know, those those tropes are really kind of unified there. And that, you know, leads to a lot of other treasure hunting adventures in that late 1800s period, too. That's another boom time for treasure hunting. And, and some of the real treasure hunts that actually exist today, to some extent, date to that period. You know, when people would start to tell stories that probably had some truth to them, but have a lot of myth to them. 
And I think that, you know, Treasure Island, um, King Solomon's Mines, which all came, also came out around the same time, have a lot to do with that, where, uh, you know, art boosts truth and truth boosts art. And they kind of work in tandem to create these legends um, that that people then actually go out and follow, you know, um, things like, I don't know if you're going to get into this, but you know, things like the Beale Papers, which are a great treasure hunt uh, out of Virginia, um, and the Lost Dutchman Mine, um, one out of the Southwest, have their origins around this period. And I think, you know, Treasure Island and the the rise of that fiction and the codification of those tropes has a lot to do with that. Right. And it seems like, you know, some of the patterns are in terms of, you know, why treasure might exist. Sometimes it's a lost civilization, either a city or a group of people who vanished, but supposedly their treasure is left behind somewhere in the mountains between Arizona and New Mexico or something. And then people who were up to no good in one way or another. I mean, you live in, you're from Massachusetts. Uh, I'm from Connecticut. Um, Captain Kidd is big around here. There's an idea that Captain Kidd treasure still might be out in some little wonky little island somewhere, maybe even a little ways up the Connecticut River. People are always looking for Captain Kidd stuff. Um, but the, So he's a pirate, you know, or whatever you want to call him. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and But, you know, you also people, there's an entire TV show uh, where people are looking for Nazi treasure, all the stuff that the Nazis basically looted uh, from people that they, that they oppressed. Uh, and some of it's been found, some of it hasn't, some of it's supposed to be in the bottom of a lake. So there's sort of, you know, evildoers probably are, are the people who sometimes kind of lose control of their treasure. Yeah, I think in a lot of these, you have to have like a plausible reason and then a reason to go and seek it. You know, it's like, all right, well, why, why is this thing out there? Why was it lost? Okay. You know, again, the, the Spanish galleon example is the classic one. That one makes sense. Okay. A storm came into the bottom of the ocean. I get that. Otherwise it's like, well, you know, my great uncle Fred, he buried this treasure in this swamp because, and that usually doesn't hold water. So, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when, when the more professional treasure hunters are seeking these things, you know, they explore these stories and they look at them and they say, all right, well, what actually makes sense here? What's real? What, what has some truth to it, even if there's a lot of legend steeped in with it? Um, and they look for these things and, you know, they parse out these stories and see what the origin of it is and what the nut at the core of that is. And a lot of times it does have to do with war or turmoil or evil doing in some way, because, you know, that a lot of times is when fortunes change hands. Um, you know, in, in calm times, nobody's hiding treasure in the, you know, the mountains, other than the, exa the example I know we're going to get to later. But, you know, that doesn't usually lead to the kind of treasure you're finding. Usually it is chaos that breeds this kind of thing. Because otherwise, people just put their money in banks. You know, they don't just bury it somewhere. It doesn't happen that way, you know. And, and the stories don't hold up for those reasons. So I think, yeah, you do run into a lot of those where something has to go wrong. And that does make it more compelling. You know, a lot of the reason why... You know, people want to seek this stuff is because it's connected to a compelling story. Um, you know, I, I said in the book at one point that, you know, there are easier ways to get rich than looking for treasure, including buying a lottery ticket. You are almost very much definitely not going to get rich looking for treasure. Um, but it's about the chase. It's about being a part of that story and attaching yourself to the history there and being a part of something that is bigger than yourself. And that is a very attractive idea to people. So, you know, as we move in closer towards modernity and the world becomes a little bit more tamed and as you go across America, you know, towns tend to look more and more like one another. They all have CVSs and Boston markets or whatever, you know, and and so, you know, you would think maybe this whole thing would go away or it would be even more sought after. But it does seem and this will sort of form the bridge from where we are now to the second segment. We'll talk about Forrest Fenn that the kind of planned insertion of treasure 
um, the planned and heavily publicized insertion of treasure into an environment becomes a, a big deal. Uh, and, and so one of these happens, as you document uh, in your book, uh, in, in England uh, and involves – actually, I was re- so weird reading this book, Dave, because I interviewed Bamber Gascoigne right around this time. Uh, about really? Some, That's uh, very interesting. About something completely different. But explain the, the – just really quickly the kind of the whole masquerade uh, sure. story. Yeah, like, so, you know, one of the sad tragedies of the modern world is they're not really making more treasure. You know, there's not nobody's sinking Spanish galleons for us. Nobody is is, you know, losing these gold chests on wagon trains. It's just not happening. So at the same time, the desire to be part of these grand adventures still exists. And so there came the development of what are kind of known as armchair treasure hunts, which are usually essentially, you know, man-made treasure hunts that um, somebody puts out there and you are supposed to find the treasure. The whole idea is that this thing has been crafted for, for the audience to actually go and seek this thing. And the first really great one of those was called Masquerade, which uh, took place um, from essentially 1979 to 1982 uh, in, in England. And an artist named Kit Williams came up with a, um, a treasure hunting book, essentially where he drew pictures and inside the pictures um, the pictures themselves were, were a form of code. And if you could decipher what the underlying theme was, you could figure out what each of the pictures meant. And if you put them all together, which was not easy to do, you could then lead yourself to the location of a treasure. And as you mentioned, Bamberg Gascoigne, who was a, a television host at the time, um, you know, was involved in, in publicizing and, and verifying this to this extent. So, um, you know, it became a huge phenomenon in England in that time and to some extent worldwide, although, you know, it was harder for things to do that back then. You know, it was hard to get a copy of the book outside England. So uh, but millions of copies were sold and people were searching for this thing and digging up areas all over England uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, eventually a couple of years later, it was found. Um, and, you know, uh, the the thing with there was a whole very complicated thing where you know at, at noon on a certain day uh, at a church uh, a shadow cast over a spot led you to dig in that location it's a whole thing it was actually really very intelligent very brilliant although as with the case with so many of these hunts it kind of ended in a little bit of scandal when a number of years later it turned out that the person who actually found uh, the treasure had a connection to the ex girlfriend of the guy who had hidden it and she had helped her new beau to locate the right spot. Not that the author had anything to do with it. He was, you know, completely blameless in this, but um, there was an element of corruption to this. And that, you know, is something that unfortunately you do find in a lot of these treasure hunts, uh, the the armchair ones, the man-made ones, um, where there's, you know, some tinge of scandal to it. And that, you know, I think uh, is, is, in many people's minds today, but Masquerade was was a great one and led to a number of others like The Secret that came after it. Um, and just, you know, it really kicked off to some extent the, the armchair hunting craze, which is, you know, a much more modern form of treasure hunting than the traditional go and find something that nobody intended you to find that was lost by accident hundreds of years ago. Right. Uh, Dan Barbarisi, it's a messy, messy, dirty, dirty world we live in sometimes. Uh, And uh, we will uh, be talking a little bit about that because, in fact, the Forrest Fenn story is not entirely clean of attendant scandals. Uh, That's what we're going to talk about with Dan in the second segment. He's the author of Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. We'll take a break. We'll return.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Uh, we're talking uh, about uh, treasure hunting. Uh, we're doing that with Dan Barbarisi, who's the author of Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. That would be the Forrest Fenn uh, treasure hunt. Uh, and for those of you who didn't pick up on it, although <laughs> it did really eventually become very much a mass media plus uh, an internet viral uh, story, uh, we'll just try to lay out the, the bare bones of it for you before we talk a little bit more about what happened. So, um, so Dan Barbarisi, first of all, we should say that the, this man, Forrest Fenn, was uh, interested in doing a lot of different things in creating this sort of artificial treasure hunt. Um, but one of them was self-mythologizing. Right. There was first of all, you should quickly just even t- he he thought he was going to do something like this many years before he did it because he thought he was going to die pretty young uh, from uh, from a form of cancer. Yeah, I'll give you the kind of Cliff's Notes version of the whole thing. Yeah. So, um, it, Forrest Fenn was a you know fighter pilot from the Vietnam Korea Vietnam era uh, who became a very well known um, art dealer out of Santa Fe in the seventies and eighties. You know, had a, a big famous gallery. Uh, was really part of the scene there, you know, had a lot of very famous friends, was kind of an art dealer to the stars for Southwestern art. Um, and in the late eighties, he was diagnosed with cancer on his inferior vena cava. And he was given a one in five chance to live and he was not expected to survive. Um, and, you know, Fenn was the kind of guy who did not like uh, being told those kind of odds. And um, he uh, was, you know, very unhappy about this diagnosis, obviously. Um, and he didn't want to take it sitting down or lying down as the case may be. And, uh, you know, he had this grand collection and his friend Ralph Lauren, this is how the tale goes, uh, was in his study with him, which is a magnificent room with all his, you know, attendant treasures there. And, you know, he wanted to buy a headdress off him and Fenn said, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to sell it to you. And then Lauren said, you know, Fenn, you can't take it with you, you know, assuming that as he knew he was probably going to die. And Fenn said, well, why can't I? And, you know, they kind of had a laugh about it, but that was what led him to come up with uh, a very you know, unusual plan that he was going to take some of his wealth and some of the fantastic objects he had collected over the years, um, put them in an actual treasure chest, take that chest somewhere out into the wilderness to a special spot, um, put the chest down, and then take a number of pills and literally die next to it. And he would have uh, written a poem that would be essentially published posthumously that would then lead searchers to the location of his body and his chest. And they could leave his bones, take his chest and go in peace. Um, Now, fortunately, I think for everyone involved, Fenn actually miraculously beat the cancer in the late 80s. And so he did not have the reason to go through with his plan, but um, he liked it. He didn't just, you know, it wasn't just some crazy near death thing for him. And 
So over the next 20 plus years, he kind of kept at it, kept refining the plan and started to actually acquire the treasure chest and fill the chest with valuables. And he started working on the poem and really crafted it into something so that, you know, when by the time 2010 hit, he had his plan ready to go. And he decided he was 80 ish, let's say at the time. And he um, published the book, uh, his memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, uh, which contained a poem. And this was the one he'd been refining for so long. And uh, if one followed that poem, it led to a spot where he had hidden uh, this treasure chest. And uh, from that point, he kind of just put it out into the world and said, essentially, you know, have at it. And uh, it started as kind of a very small, um, you know, kind of local curiosity in the in the Southwest. Uh, you know, probably a few thousand people looking for this thing. You know, local art dealer uh, hides treasure. People go searching for it. You know, News 11 kind of thing. Um, but it, it actually began to get a, gain a, a much larger audience uh, through the publication of a few different magazine articles, one in the United Flight Magazine Hemispheres, one in Newsweek, and then pivotally uh, it appeared on the Today Show in 2013, and the whole thing just went crazy. Um, it became a, a true worldwide phenomenon at that point. You know, tens and tens of thousands of people started looking for this thing, uh, and it just it completely morphed into this, um, this craze. Uh, and so for the next, you know, three or four years from there, it just was this big phenomenon where people were just out there looking for it. They would go what's called boots on the ground in the search area, which was New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana uh, in search of Fenn's treasure. And a whole culture developed around it. Uh, you know, you have these events called Fenbaris where uh, devotees would actually go out there and, and, you know, meet each other. You would have, you know, kind of some extent groups who would, you know, work together. Uh, you'd have friendships develop, romances develop, rivalries develop. Um, and this whole world and ecosystem that begins uh, to live around this this treasure hunt. And, you know, it became this fascinating phenomenon. That's essentially where I came into it around 2017. So, yeah, it becomes this gigantic thing. And five five people died. Uh, um, yeah, uh, at least five people. The first one was in 2016 and then three of them in 2017, like right after I kind of uh, entered the fray and then another one in 2020. So I have this sort of NPR wussy talk theory that um, I'm going to float by you. And it was somewhat inspired by uh, the sort of the Don Quixote of your book, to whom you are kind of a Sancho Panza. Um, uh, I think he's called Beep uh, in the book. And you <laughs> mentioned that his his money for financing his uh, his quest comes from cryptocurrency. And I find myself thinking, well, you know, really, you know, first of all, the whole history of currency is a gradual detachment from the actual things of value uh, that it, it represented. So, I mean, once it wasn't gold backed or whatever, um, and and. And cryptocurrency is kind of the ultimate culmination of this, where you know most of the value uh, and what's come after cryptocurrency too, uh, uh, FTPs and stuff like that, uh, just things that are just theoretical forms of value. And I'm wondering if some of the fever that accompanied the Forrest Finn thing was this sort of because it's right around the time. And that cryptocurrency is really starting to become part of the consciousness. This fever th for something that's actually of tangible value, the stuff that's, you know, that's in the chest. I mean, some of its value is it, the history that goes with it or the artistry that accompanies it. But a lot of it is just like gold stuff, you know. And I'm wondering if maybe there's some part, some atavistic part of us that still wants things like that, even as money becomes, you know, less and less like money. There certainly could be something to that, you know, like the tangible is always attractive versus kind of the ephemeral. But 
Um, I think it's it's more, you know, towards some of the stuff you were mentioning earlier about the idea of, you know, wanting to believe in something and be part of something. And, you know, and, you know, one of the things that Fenn said in terms of why he put this thing out there was that, you know, it was coming out of the financial crisis and, you know, the housing crisis and, and people were not believing in anything. And he wanted to give them something kind of to dream on, you know, and um, I think he had a number of reasons for actually hiding the chest, but I do think that is one of them. And I think that, that was one of the things that did appeal to people in that time period that, you know, this is giving them something to aspire to. And the idea that there was something bigger out there than themselves and this thing that you could chase and capture. And even if you don't find it and get rich off it, because that's not really the point, you're going to have, you know, a sense of purpose and a sense of something to quest for. And I think that, you know, that, that feeling of hope um, and seeking is really valuable to people. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the, the idea of, of, of a tangible thing to seek is, is certainly something as well. But yeah, so what you were referring to there is that, um, you know, the guy, so when I went into this kind of journalist slash seeker, I tagged on to a guy named Jay Rayner, who went by the name uh, Beep I'm a Jeep, known as Beep more often, um, who, yes, was a uh, fantasy sports uh, superstar who then became a, you know, a, a crypto millionaire. Uh, he was, as many of those guys were early into crypto. Um, and so that was some of what he used to bankroll some of his adventures out there, which I tagged along with him on uh, in the 2017-ish uh, period when, you know, um, Ether and all those other currencies were really just starting to hit the, the popular uh, landscape. And, you know, um, I got some nice dinners out there off him um, <laughs> and his bankrolling on that. Although, uh, you know, I, I was not smart enough to fully buy into crypto uh, at that phase. I think I had Bitcoin at three and sold it at six and thought I was very smart. Um, I was not very smart, it turned out. But um, yeah, you know, I think you know, there, there's certainly a lot to the idea that, you know, treasure is is something you can hold in your hand. Um, and it is something that, you know, don't, you know, again, some of the stuff you're doing out there, what is one thing, something worth? It's what we value it as. You know, you mentioned NFTs, you know, what is something worth to a person? You know, why is something that's buried in the ground for 2000 years, even though it's essentially a piece of junk, have such incredible priceless value. You know, what, what does it mean to us? What, you know, we define what value is. You know, we decided that gold was valuable because it was shiny and had some permanence to it. You know, it's, and it could be molded into things. You know, we could have decided that quartz was really valuable. We didn't. But, you know, um, we give something its value. And that's certainly the case, you know, with the treasure chest and the treasure hunt and the reason that it mattered to people. Now, another thing about Forrest Fenn was that he loved the American wilderness, the American outdoors, uh, had loved it since he was uh, a boy. And and he wanted people to do something that the National Park Service wants you to do, which is get out and enjoy the splendors of America. But he also wanted people to do something that the National Park Service doesn't want you to do, which is leave the trail. I mean, at least it's pretty clear from the poem right away that you're going to have to go off the trail which is kind of the thing that everybody, every sign in every state park or in every national park tells you not to do. And there were some pretty negative consequences from all that. Yeah, you know, I think Fenn was a guy who, you know, he, he took a certain pleasure in, in cultivating a maverick image. Um, you know, I don't think he was, you know, seeking criminal activity all the time, but he certainly didn't mind bending the rules if he thought it served the correct purpose. And, you know, in his mind, the world is out there for exploring. You're not supposed to just stay on the path. You're not just supposed to say what they tell you. You're supposed to go out there and find things and do stuff and have adventures and all that. And so, you know, um, he, he didn't mind the idea that people were certainly going to go off the trail and seek his treasure. Um, you know, and there were going to be consequences to that, but I think, you know, he certainly did not, he didn't expect people to perhaps go to the lengths that they did and put themselves in the level of danger that they did in the search for his treasure. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this thing becomes very complicated when people start trying to cross major rivers and 
climb to high peaks in seek or in search of his treasure. You know, and he has to tell people, don't go somewhere where an 80 year old man couldn't go to hide this thing. But the reality of this is, is that, you know, once the treasure fever kind of takes hold, not everyone's going to listen to that. You know, and one of the things we ran into at our searching was that you can find pretty much any way you want to justify something to yourself. If you think that you're in pursuit of something, you know, well, then that doesn't apply because of this and this, we can go there because of that. And it's okay. He wanted us to do this, or, you know, he would have gone at a different time and it would have been accessible for an 80 year old man. He was a very fit 80 year old man. You know, whatever your rationalization is, you know, people come up with them. And so they, you know, started to put themselves in increasing situation, dangerous situations. And, you know, as you mentioned, that's what led to you know, all those deaths and would have almost definitely led to more if the, you know, had treasure hunt had not come to its uh, you know logical end there. But um, it was a something which I think he really wrestled with and he wanted to try to keep people safe from that point on and give hints that would keep them from getting into too much danger, um, but also not compromise the hunt. And that worked to some extent, you know, he did release some additional information. Um, but the reality is, you know, people were going to keep putting themselves into dangerous situations and saying, you know, this is why I know where the treasure is. I'm going to go find it. And this is why that doesn't apply to me. You know, there's a certain exceptionalism to this. Um, and I don't think Fenn ever anticipated any of that, but that's kind of where it goes when you do something like this. So, you know, we live in a time where people who are interested in a thing can find one another incredibly easily and, and clump together really, really easily. And traditionally, treasure hunters, I think, haven't really been interested necessarily in that communitarian process because the more people who know about something, I mean, even going back to our friend Captain William Phipps, he went back uh, for a second time, but there'd been so much publicity and everything. Went back to the same wreck, but there's like n- basically nothing there at that point. Everybody's <laughs> like diving down there and getting stuff. You don't want a lot of people getting interested in this, but that's what happened here. There, be- there came to be, uh, Dan. It seems a community whose whose excitement about this and whose willingness even to sort of pool information uh, cut across the grain of the typical solitary treasure hunter, Indiana Jones, trying to warn anybody else off what he's doing. Yeah, well, you know, thank the same thing we can thank or blame for everything else. And now the Internet, you know, it's the Internet changed everything when it came to treasure hunting in the early 2000s. You know, with hunts like uh, The Secret and um, another one, you know, uh, oh God, I'm not remembering it right now. It's the forum was called 12, uh, anyway, 12 jewels, hidden caches all over. Anyway, a um, couple other treasure hunts and they became real internet phenomena in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and it turned out that people wanted to just talk about the treasure and chit chat over it because, you know, nobody's more right than anybody else or nobody's more wrong than anybody else. So everybody can kind of be on equal footing in these situations and can debate these things and go back over it. And that's, you know, can be why they get contentious at times, you know, oh, you don't know anything. I know everything, vice versa. But, you know, they can also be a lot of fun and, you know, areas where people can really bond over, you know, the like-minded sensibility and, and, and have people not look at them crazy when they tell them, oh, yes, I'm a treasure hunter. You know, oh, you're with people who understand that. And, you know, they get what that means to you and why that's special. And so, you know, the Internet really very much took several other of these earlier hunts and then, you know, Fenn's hunt uh, to another level. And the community that developed around it was fascinating, you know, and really um, existed all year round. You know, people who were boots on the ground, you know, could do that from if you live in New Mexico or Colorado, you know, you might go out on, on frequent searches. If you don't live there, you know, let's say if you're on the East coast or in another country, 
you know, it's a real hardship for you to get out there and actually search. And so, um, you know, that could have deterred a lot of people in the past, but a lot of people then just kind of lived in the forums on this thing on the internet and might make a trip a year and not, might honestly not even make a trip at all, but still feel connected to this search and, you know, whole personalities develop, celebrities inside this thing develop. Um, you know, there becomes this whole uh, YouTube community or you know, the FenTuber community who has all these shows, you know, discussing various aspects of the treasure hunt. You know, there's things that are being sold around it. A whole ecosystem develops around it, which is just fascinating. Um, and, you know, that's that's, I think, part of what took this hunt to the heights it did was just that that community developed and the ability to be involved in it at all times, even when you're not just out there for your brief three or five days of searching, you know, per year or whatever, it's, it's a nonstop part of your life and there's constant developments in it. And, and Fenn himself, you know, fostered a lot of that. And he loved to chit chat and talk and give interviews and, you know, put out additional information that may or may not have been useful. Um, and that, you know, stoked his hunter's interest and, and kind of kept the thing going and really, you know, feeling like it was, um, in high gear at all times. Yeah, and I really recommend reading uh, Dan's book to sort of meet some of these uh, these really interesting personalities who become kind so of So do I, for the record. Yes, I'm sure you do uh, recommend reading the book. Once again, Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. One of my favorite little details is one of the people who turns up who turns up in this milieu is John Wayne Bobbitt, somebody who really already knew what it was like to lose a treasure, uh, <laughs> but um, but for some reason or other becomes very interested in, in this thing. So we're almost out of time because I want to leave some time for uh, our geocaching guest. Um, but I mean, we might as well we might as well say that in 2020, two things happened. One of them was a forest fan finally really did die, but not before somebody found the treasure and even managed to uh, get to his side and 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 show it to him. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, kind of incredibly, there was actually a conclusion to this treasure hunt, which is something that, you know, when I started the book, I had no idea was going to possibly be the case. And then, you know, it, it actually, somebody found it, which is like totally crazy and amazing. And, you know, in the, when I was writing the book, I was like, at first, I was like, oh, no, I was like finishing the book at the time. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm gonna have to rip up half this thing. But ultimately, it ended up being actually a great thing for me, because um, you know, when first the guy found it in June of 2020, um, you know, we didn't really know much of anything and Fenn wasn't releasing details. He wasn't releasing where the thing was found or who found it. And I understood that because, um, you know, the, um, the identity, if the finder's identity is revealed, that could really put that person in danger. There's a lot of people who don't like, you know, that somebody found it or think that person, you know, cheated them or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so the finder wanted to remain anonymous and, uh, eventually, you know, Fenn and the finder jointly released that the treasure had been found in Wyoming, um, but they still didn't release who it was. And then Fenn dies in September of 2020. And it could have been that, you know, we didn't know anything else from there. Um, and we might never have known, you know, anything more. That was really what I thought was going to happen at the time. And then, um, the finder published an anonymous essay on the website medium, kind of detailing a few things about the search and explaining a little bit about, himself. And, um, you know, I was actually able to use that to get in touch with him. And then uh, a few months later to actually, you know, reveal to the world who he was uh, in an article in Outside Magazine in December of 2020. And it turned out it was this guy, uh, Jack Stoof, who was at the time a 32-year-old medical student out of Michigan, um, or raised in Michigan. And, um, you know, it became a, kind of a different phenomenon from there. Um, you know, when people knew that, okay, Jack was a guy, Jack was real, and Jack had the treasure. And, uh, you know, that he's the guy. And, you know, that, that led a lot of other people to have a lot of other questions because Jack did not tell them where he found it because he's trying to preserve um, the sanctity of that spot because, you know, he doesn't want it to be the tourist attraction. It would almost certainly become uh, in pilgrimage site, you know, if, and when people knew where exactly Fenn had hidden the treasure. Um, but uh, you know, it has, 
it was, I think, you know, very gratifying for a lot of people to find out that there was this real person who had actually found the treasure and you know, had some conclusion to the story. But, you know, unfortunately for others, there, you know, are still so many unanswered questions, pardon me, and things that they still want to know and want to know every detail that there's a lot of hunters who are still, you know, involved in this to this day and are still trying to actually divine the location where Jack found the treasure. I mean, even now. Right. So instead of Indiana Jones and his bullwhip, it was a guy with a stethoscope. Uh, we're going to have to stop oh, there. I haven't heard that yet. Um, <laughs> feel free to use it. Uh, um, Dan Barbarisi, author of Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. We will take a break. We'll come back with the story of geocaching. People try to find it. Where could it be? Nobody knows. Oh, yeah. All right. So today's show, uh, first of all, the technical producer, as usual, is Cat Pastor. She's in the studio and making all, everything happen the way it needs to happen. The producer of this episode is celebrity producer Lily Tyson. Uh, and so thanks very much to both of them. So, uh, you know, in 2009, right before I started doing this show, right before I started doing this show in 2009, uh, I was in Japan uh, and I met a woman named Karen uh, who was um, a teacher, but it was had two passions that seemed to be kind of connected. One of them was a group called the Hangover Hash House Harriers, sometimes described as a drinking club with a running problem. But these are people who, who do run these complicated eccentric races kind of, but they also drink a lot. And the other thing she was in love with was geocaching. And I'd never heard of geocaching. I didn't understand what it was. And once I understood what it was, I still wasn't quite sure why anybody did it. Uh, but fortunately, we have with us, it is a kind of treasure hunting, though. It's a little bit divorced from the implied monetary rewards of treasure hunting. But it's a treasure hunt nonetheless. Here to tell us more about it is Marcellus Cad, who writes the blog, Geocaching While Black. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. So for those who are completely uninitiated and in the dark, explain what geocaching is. Uh, geocaching is basically a GPS-assisted uh, treasure hunt. Uh, it's like a scavenger hunt. People hide things in various places. They publish the coordinates for them, and people go out and go to these places and find them. Sometimes they are you know, simple and easy to find. Sometimes they are incredibly difficult to get to. Sometimes they are cleverly camouflaged, so they're hard to get to find. Sometimes they're cleverly constructed, so you have to uh, basically solve puzzles to even get into the box. But each and every one of them is its own little treasure. I like the way you describe it in your on your blog. Uh, that you say that you use multi million dollar satellites to find pieces of Tupperware, um, and, and so that brings up the question. So yeah, when you get the you open the box, and I think there's usually like a log or a journal or something that you can uh, sign into, indicating that you did solve this problem, and and there you are. Can you explain to me why? What would be the appeal of doing this? For me, it started out really simply. It started out as a way to just sort of fill time, something new that I hadn't done before. After a while, once it really grabbed me, I realized that there was something really enriching about basically pitting 
my Mark I brain and my Mark I eyeball against the environment. <laughs> you know, trying to find this little thing, whether it is in a forest or whether it is in the middle of the city. Um, eventually, I started to venture out further because, you know, I, I'm not exactly, an, I've never been an outdoors person, but I started going further afield and I started enjoying getting out into nature and finding these things. And then basically one day I looked up and realized I'd been doing this for hundreds of days in a row and I was hooked. And, and, and never getting stumped, really, or at least putting together this incredible Cal Ripken-like string of, of finding something every single, every single day. How long did the streak go? Oh, it's um, yesterday was 1,144 days in a row. Right. So and here's the crazy part. Yeah. I'm not even close to having the largest streak in the state. So we should say something about that, too, which is just as we were saying with Dan, there's this geocaching is also this incredible community. There are conferences and meetings and all way, all kinds of ways, I guess, for all of you people to stay in touch. There's something that I never heard of until I by the way, your blog is very addictive. I want to read way more entries than I had planned to. It's something called Mingo Madness, which I don't entirely understand. But so there's that's a whole other thing, right? It's a solitary activity. And then you get together with people. Uh, yes, um, there. One of the one of the specific types of caches is an event cache where people actually gather together to talk and to meet and to get together and go find other caches. And then, of course, there are larger versions of that mega events, which are more like regional comp regional events, and even giga events, which are huge. Um, international um, conferences, basically. So um, we should say a little bit about the title of the blog. Uh, I mean, geocaching, I think, is for the most part understood to be a somewhat benign and maybe compared to treasure hunting, you know, out in the wilds where you can get washed away in a river, a somewhat safe thing to do. Although I would like to say that when I was getting to know my friend Karen in, in Japan, there's a lot of places in Japan, like in cities, where you take two steps off the sidewalk past the fence and like a monkey bites you right away. So but, <laughs> um, you know, or a wild boar charges at you or something. But um, for, but for you, yeah, we, we've learned, if we didn't know already over the last two or three years, we've learned that being black in America and walking around someplace where people don't know you and don't understand what you might be doing there is not necessarily the same as being white and doing those same things. Uh, not at all. Um, I, geocaching itself is completely race neutral. But I also realize I'm doing this race-neutral thing in a world that isn't entirely race-neutral. It's you know just the way it is, and so I started one of the the reason why I even started you know writing about this and why I call it geocaching all black is because um, early on I had been reading a forum and somebody posed the question of how many times various cashers had gotten stopped by the cops while they were doing their thing. And a lot of people were saying, I've been you know, stopped once in five years, or I've never been stopped in four years or some stuff like that. And at the time I realized I'd been stopped by, I'd been doing it for six months and I'd been stopped by cops like seven times. 
And that wasn't even counting security guards and other random people who just wanted to know what I was doing in the area. So there's so much I want to ask you, and time is short. I think I don't want to run out of time without you at least mentioning one place, one thing you would have seen, one experience that you had that was really remarkable to you that that just no way would you have ever been there without your geocaching habit. Um, Well, (laughs) man, there's a lot. I mean, I never would have gone to all 254 counties in Texas Mm. without this. Um. One of the ones that really sticks out to me is you mentioned Mingo Madness. And the reason why it's called that is because the oldest geocache that's still active is in a little town in Kansas called Mingo. And it's it's almost 21 years old now, and it's been in the same place. Um, But a couple of counties over from there, there is... It off the, it's off this side road near uh, St. Francis, uh, near St. Francis, Kansas. You know, you go about 11 miles north uh, heading for the Nebraska border, and there is a place called the Arikaree Breaks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and what, and, you know, just I pulled over the side of the road, and there was this ancient ammo can that was almost as old as Mingo. And I just stopped, and I looked because there is this giant it's basically this this area in between you know large hills but there are like these little canyon like carvings out of the rock and they just look almost like impossible gouges out of the earth that yeah. shouldn't be there and yet they are and they're just so absolutely gorgeous and stunning and after I found the thing, I literally just stood there for about five minutes. Wasn't that the place with, where, the, where the elk hunters came up to you and asked you, you, you explained geocaching to them and they explained elk hunting to you? Exactly. And one of those elk hunters was also from Texas and he had never been there. And so this, you know, like probably 20 year old kid just stood there and looked at it just like I had been looking at it five minutes before they showed up. Yeah, I loved that entry. I love that entry in your blog. So I, I, you have to, you only have like twenty seconds to answer this question. But there's just like this other thing that you do that I think is unconnected to geocaching. You have this obsession with taking pictures of courthouses. Can you explain that in twenty seconds? Oh sure. Um, A long time ago, I thought it would be interesting to visit every courthouse in Texas, and since I decided to find a cache in every county in Texas, I figured, why not? I'd go ahead and go to the courthouse while I was there. And once I was done with Texas and I started going to other states, I figured I've been doing this for 254 counties. I might as well keep going. And now I'm at 565 and still going. Right. You are the only person ever to visit Roswell, New Mexico, and be more excited about the courthouse than about the dead aliens. Uh, I don't Probably. know whether that's an accomplishment <laughs> or, or something that you should seek treatment for. But uh, one way or another, uh, it, it marks you out. The blog is called Geocaching While Black. It is a really terrific account of Americana just because all the places he goes— Well, I mean, you just have to read it. Marcellus Cat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. We're all done.